Thanks, guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And as Spence said, welcome to our church. If it's your first Sunday, we're super glad you guys are here uh, to do church with us and, and study or uh, hear from the voice of God through First and Second Samuel, which is our uh, current sermon series. So if you have a Bible and like to follow along that way, please feel free to turn to Second Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 to 10. Uh, if uh, this is a newer uh, thing for you, uh, book-wise or just biblically or otherwise, uh, the books of First and Second Samuel are basically uh, the books that tell us of the initial rise of the kings in Israel's history and, and also in biblical history. So it's history and theology. And that's important because Jesus is a king. And so these imperfect, kind of partial, um, almost semi-stories of the kings in Israel's history uh, that are rough around the edges in, in many ways, more ways than one, uh, still set the stage for the perfect version of them coming later in the story. That's why it's important for us to read them. That's why we don't rip them out of our Bibles after acknowledging them or reading them once or just because we have the better version in the New Testament. Uh, they are still here to serve a perfect purpose, uh, to shape what Jesus will be like, uh, to give us glimpses and foreshadowings, instances, types of what he will be like later in the story. So a few weeks ago, we turned the page to 2 Samuel, and the big shift between then 1 and 2 Samuel uh, being Saul's death and David's, King David's slow but intentional rise to full kingship, even though he had already been anointed king by Samuel and identified as king by God himself, uh, chapters before that. So many of these early stories in 2 Samuel have to do with this final transition, which is not as smooth as you might expect. It includes war and coup attempts and death and betrayal and other surprising plot twists. It's very Game of Thronesy, as Spence said last week. Um, and so today, uh, we'll be looking at water tunnel salvation from 2 Samuel 5, 6 to 10. Um, just to set the stage for you and to summarize the first five verses, David is officially anointed king in this passage. So there's kind of two anointings in David's life. There's the one with Samuel that I just referenced, and then there's, there's this one, uh, which I'm not going to look at today in, uh, in much depth, but actually it, it mimics how Jesus has a couple of anointings as well at his baptism, and then when he is anointed um, by Mary uh, with oil right before his crucifixion, or you can count that second anointing maybe just as his resurrection. Uh, people do it differently, but Jesus had kind of a dual anointing too in his life, and so David uh, is kind of referencing that. His story is referencing that. We're also in this, uh, the first five verses, we're reminded that God said that David would be a shepherd king to Israel, which is kind of weird and unique. It's not something we see about other kings uh, in the Bible, at least very few. Um, but it almost serves as kind of a qualifier to what kind of king he would be. Shepherds fight for their sheep, at least good shepherds do. Uh, they have a caring, kind of gentle dimension to them. And so um, this too points ahead to how his distant descendant Jesus would serve as a king that would serve for our benefit, not to lord it over us and to crush us, but one who would come underneath us and protect us from the worst of wolves and the worst of spiritual nightmares that haunt us every day. 
Uh, and it also mentions that David ruled Israel for 40 years uh, total. So kind of a look-ahead commentary by the author. Uh, but then we go, kind of are sucked back into the present in the story of David's conquering of Jerusalem, which is the, the point of today's passage, the context. David, this is the story of him uh, looking at Jerusalem, seeing it, its advantageous sort of um, place being built up high, very hard uh, to take over uh, with its uh, walled city nature, but also being up high. And he said, that's the city that I want to uh, take over and have uh, as the capital city of uh, my, my kingdom. And so that's what he does. At this point, Jer- Jerusalem is c- still controlled by the Jebusites. Uh, the Jebusites are a non-Israelite tribe of people who have kind of lingered there since Israel's conquest of the land under Joshua centuries prior. All right, so a lot more that could be said, but that gives you a little bit of uh, biblical and historical context to what's going on here. We'll pick up in verse 6 and read through verse 10 today. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, he had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water tunnel to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built, built up the area around it from the terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. <clears throat> All right, so what I want to do today is kind of work backwards uh, to, to the front. So from the end of the passage, you kind of work backwards uh, to the beginning And so before we talk about the nature of the victory in the battle itself, which has some kind of interesting elements here you may have picked up on, um, I want to look at verse 10, which is a sort of uh, an outcome verse, uh, or in literary terms, we might call this like a falling action verse that helps the reader understand that more is going on here than meets the eye. It's kind of climactic, but also kind of falling action, and it serves as kind of a helpful uh, commentary on what's uh, kind of going on behind the curtains theologically and otherwise. Again, it says, And David became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. All right, so a a pretty simple statement in a lot of ways. Um, If you've read the Bible before, at least especially this genre, um, this may not sound brand new, but these are easily skip-overable things. Uh, because we see them a lot. We see them in the Psalms when David writes in poetry about them. We see it also, uh, versions of this in the New Testament. But this is just a simple thing. It says something about David and then gives a reason for it, just linked with the word because. So why did all of this happen? Why did David grow stronger and stronger as a human being, as a man, as a king? The answer is because God was with him. He was close to him. And that's actually probably the most important word in this verse, the word with. Uh, It's again, sounds like something right out of uh, one of Paul's letters in the New Testament, uh, like from 2 Corinthians 12, where it says things like, when I am weak as a Christian, when we are weak as Christians, that's actually when we're strongest. That's when we're living peak Christianity, when we're at the bottom, when we're weak. When, Paul says elsewhere, when I, I actually boast in what I'm bad at. I brag at all the things that I'm imperfect at and bad at because I know that in that space, 
that's when I'm strong because I'm not. Jesus is. And so to be weak and open-handed is to receive and accept the strength the strength of God. Much more to say about that in New Testament terms, but that's basically the gist of what's going on here in this portion of one of Paul's letters. We can also understand this in spiritual terms as Christians. Going back to today's passage, Christians are strong not because they are strong, but because the only one who is strong is with them. Uh, it's the same with holiness, by the way, but that's a, another conversation. The Bible calls us children, the Bible call, as, as Christians, the Bible calls us sheep, children and sheep. Th- those are very endearing terms, uh, but they're weak terms. Uh, it also calls us corpses. We're, we're effective zombies. We're, we're not strong. Uh, but we also contain the power of the resurrected Christ inside of us as well at the exact same time. That's kind of the duality, the tension, that in, and the way we look at ourselves in an anthropological way, a biblically anthropological way, is who are we? We are weak, and yet we're the strongest at the exact same time because the only one who's strong lives inside of us. And so David, then, is a forerunning picture of salvation here. A Christian, and David's a whisper of this, finds victory over sin not because they've done anything, and not even based on how much they feel like they fight, though we do fight. Notice uh, in, this, um, in the story today, there's very little description of exactly how the battle went. Uh, in fact, um, it just says David conquered the city. There was these insults thrown at him uh, from the Jebusites, and then it just says, but in fact, David took over Zion. He, he took over Jerusalem. It's just described, and I like that. Um, a lot of times that's how we feel as believers. We're victorious, but we're kind of unsure exactly how, how because we don't feel it all the time. Uh, it's kind of like if you guys have seen The Office when Michael and Dwight are outside David Wallace's house jumping up and down saying, we did it, we did it, we saved the branch. And then they catch their breath and say, wait, how did we do it? Uh, over and over again, how do we do this? What do we do? Uh, if you've seen that. Uh, it's sort of like that. That's actually pretty descriptive of the Christian life. Uh, if there's a good kind of imposter syndrome, uh, that, then, we would be experience, that then, then we would be experiencing that as Christians. All of a sudden, we move from outsider to insider, unsaved to saved, far from God to close to God, hell to heaven, but we realize we've done nothing ourselves to make it happen. It happens by the power of the nail-pierced hands of Jesus, not by our works. Or to use 2 Samuel's language, because God was with us, we have the victory. Because he became a man, because he became Emmanuel, which means God with us, because he dwelt among us, because he got in line with sinners to get baptized, for crying out loud, and ultimately died with us, for us, as one of us, then he remains with us by his spirit. This is how we have strength. And so our strength is actually simply being close to him by faith, believing that, believing that he's drawing near to us constantly and wants to be with us. And because he died for our sins, the walls have been torn down, like that song just got at. The gray walls have been destroyed, brought down, and he's actually able to be with us now without any dividing wall in between. And so to put it differently, David was not strong because of his own obedience. It doesn't say that. 
David was not strong because he did a lot of spiritual disciplines, because he woke up early and did spiritual disciplines. David was not strong because of his law-keeping abilities, because he kept the Ten Commandments most of the time. It doesn't say that. Why was he strong? Why did he have power and strength? It was simply because God chose to be close to him and loved him. So, whereas religion will say, you are weak, now here's how to be strong. Here's ten ways to be strong yourself. Go do it. The gospel says you are weak, but now you're strong because Jesus died for you, and now he's with you. You see the difference? This is not a how-to manual. Biblical Christianity is not you are weak, here's how to be strong on your own. Biblical Christianity is you are weak, and you actually stay weak. You stay, like Paul's saying in, as a Christian in 2 Corinthians, in one sense, we always stay weak, but the strong one dwells with us. He is our shepherd. He is our all in all. And in fact, um, just to hear that as Christians uh, is part of what we're supposed to hear in this passage and part of why th- these things are written for us because such is your story, Christian. There's nothing you can do or not do to change your spiritual strength before God. So please just hear that. Maybe you've heard that a thousand times. Maybe you never have. There's nothing you can do to change your spiritual strength before God or not do. Nothing. Either you have it or you don't. Either you're strong in him or you're not. The Bible says he is our salvation. He himself is our strength. He himself is our hope. He himself is our very life. These are mystical, difficult things to think and apply sometimes, but we must try. We must strive to think this way, actually as Christians and not as religionists and moralists. That makes us no different from the world. This is actually what Jesus is saving us up and out of and the story of David is one of, the, one of the, the chorus of voices of this freeing and wonderful gospel that we hear in Scripture to be reminded that God is one who dwells close to us. He was born as one of us to dwell with us, to die for us. And in him, we have strength. We have spiritual renewal. We have resurrection power. All right, so with that said, let's um, shift gears and kind of work backwards through the passage and talk more about the unique nature of this battle narrative. Again, if you've read um, this genre of Scripture before, chances are elements of this stuck out as a bit unique. You don't see a lot of um, water tunnel-like deliverances in the Bible. In fact, this is the only one I can think of. Um, And so it's unique, and the Bible is um, kind of at pains. It's kind of keen on this. It's, 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 It's looking at themes And it's saying this is how something happened in order to teach us theology. Again, today with this sneaky water tunnel entry point to the city that took the Jebusites off guard and allowed this this victory uh, to happen. So a couple of things today I want to look at that um, highlights um, further what's going on, but also kind of highlights theology. Uh, I want to look at this in a spiritual way as Scripture does to itself uh, time and time again. The first has to do with the mention of the blind and the lame. Um, so, uh, again, that may have been something that stuck out to you. Um, I think it's supposed to. This also is unique um, to, uh, to uh, David's uh, stories. 
And in one sense, this is just meant to be read, I think, with a tinge of humor and irony to it. The, the Jebusites in this story are ridiculing David. They're saying the weakest among us could keep you out. Uh, the most incapable and inept people in our city are still strong enough to keep you out of uh, the walls of our city. Uh, they can beat you. And so it's, it's an insult. In fact, they, what they probably did is put the blind and lame up on the walls of the city uh, visibly to David and his men down below to show them, we don't even need to stand guard as archers on the wall. We don't even have to be up here. That's how confident we are in our city, in the walls of our city, and the strength of our hands to keep you out. But then, as we keep reading, we see after the victory, uh, after David does take over the city, he uses the language himself to refer to them as his enemies. And then later, after the victory uh, happens, a saying was adopted, the blind and lame will not enter the palace, to again kind of turn the Jebusites' insults back upon them. And so, in this sense then, what's going on, again, looking at this spiritually, in, sense, in this sense, what's going on is it becomes kind of a forerunning picture of the insults that Christians speak over their own enemy, their spiritual enemy, their sin, the devil, and death itself. This is the big one that should come to mind, is in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul says, where, O death, is your sting? This is like scriptural trash talk. Uh, against the darkness, it's against evil, it's against what formerly bound us. Um, and we take this up as Christians ourselves on this side of the empty tomb. Uh, if death is shouting at us from the top of the wall saying scoreboard, uh, we're saying with our finger at the empty tomb, yeah, scoreboard. Uh, like y- y- your, 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 your power is apparently uh, weakening and, and this one who walked out of here is our shepherd and our king, and we cling to him, and, and we hope in him, uh, not, not, in, not in the grave or ourselves. And so um, even on our deathbeds, we can taunt death because of Jesus' victory. This is, um, if you guys have ever read Martin Luther, he was big on this, taunting the devil and taunting um, death itself, um, not because of us or anything that we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us and putting all of our hope in him. So David's words then, even though it might sound kind of weird uh, to turn this insult back upon the Jebusites, spiritually speaking, it's reminiscent in the book of Revelation how all evil will be kept out of the city of God. Uh, All evil will not enter the palace of God or the walls of the new Jerusalem when it comes up uh, down out of heaven to a new earth in the future, which we all, as Christians, we longingly wait for. And so it's good news. All right, but with that said, it's more nuanced because uh, in Jesus' ministry, Jesus heals the blind and the lame, right? In fact, um, in Matthew 21, 14, it uses that exact phrase to refer to the types of people who were brought to him in the temple in Jerusalem to be healed, and not cast out. Uh, This is actually, I think, meant to be read as kind of almost a qualifier or a bookend to 2 Samuel 5. Matthew 21 is because the language is so, so similar. You have two Davids, a first David and a second David. You have the blind and the lame. You have Jerusalem. Um, They're meant to be very similar, but also different, right? Because the way the blind and the lame are being treated 
and talk to in Jesus' ministry uh, is, uh, is a marked difference. Um, but it also helps us remember how we should think about ourselves in light of this story. And, and that is, you and I are the blind and the lame. And Jesus, the second David, heals us of these types of heart conditions, of not being able to see God, which is true blindness, and not being able to get to God, which is true lameness. And so the strangeness of this story and the out-of-place nature of the blind and lame, which again, sounds like all of a sudden we've just picked up the Gospels and we're reading something from Jesus' ministry. Again, that's the point, that's the point is to say that it's resolved. Jesus resolves and actually flips this on its head in himself. In fact, that's the true irony is in Jesus' palace, the only type of people that are there are the blind and the lame because he came for the sick and not the healthy. And he brings us inside with payments of his own blood and, um, and not, not the payment that we bring with the works of our hands. All right? That's the first thing, the blind and the lame, and how that's addressed and fulfilled and kind of flipped in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And, and that's an important qualifier, the second, the second piece, because with the first piece, um, if all evils kept out of the city of God, the problem of the question of life, not just of Scripture, but of life, is, well, I'm evil. So am I going to be kept out? Like, how is that resolved? Uh, no, there's no one who's not evil. The Bible says no one has done good. And so this second piece is that qualifier, is that Jesus would come into the world and as king, he would make the evil or address the evil in the person by dying for it. And in that resolving it, absorbing it, taking it upon himself so that the blind and the lame can actually be inside the palace, figuratively speaking, or evil. The enemies, enemies of God, can actually dwell with, with him again and him with them. All right, the second thing, though, is to look at the tunnel itself, um, the, the water tunnel. The tunnel was really what it sounds like, but more of maybe a vertical shaft or a channel for the inhabitants of the city to access the spring water below. So essentially what happened is that David, and we actually learned from the first Chronicles version of this story, Joab, a man named Joab, was the one who raised his hand to say, I'll be the one to do this, to go in the city and, um, and, and do this uh, for, uh, for you, David, and for, um, for the army. He goes in through, kind of hard to see and read probably, I'm, I'm guessing, but in the bottom right is the spring, kind of a cross-section here, uh, and then a vertical shaft on kind of going up and left, then more of a horizontal tunnel at that point, which is all under the city. And... Um, Joab would have moved through all of that and then basically up through a tunnel access point, which would have been basically like coming up through a sewer cover in the streets. Uh, not quite like that, of course, but basically, um, basically like that. And then he would have ran to open the gates before the Jebusites realized what was happening, uh, which would have allowed David and his men to enter in and capture the city. Um, actually, in relatively recent history, the tunnel was discovered by explorers and archaeologists. You can Google this if you want. I believe it's called the Warren's Tunnel because it's named after the man who found it. Um, and so kind of cool that you can actually see this today. Um, but now, the question we should be asking is, when it comes to interpretation, is why is this here? Why is the mode of victory mentioned? Why should we care? Where's the theology in it? How are David's and Joab's actions 
reminiscent of Jesus later in the story? Those are the types of questions we should be asking. And I'll ask those again kind of with you and for you uh, with the rest of this sermon. All right, two, two big things though. The first is to look at David and Joab uh, as men, as, as savior figures in this story. And this theme of salvation from unsuspecting places because there's a reason the Jebusites didn't expect them to come out of there. Uh, the attack didn't come from the front of the city, from the most obvious place. It came from the least obvious It was so unsuspecting that there was no guard posted by the entrance to the tunnel. In the same way, the cross of Christ was the most water tunnel-like surprise attack of all time on our sin and on the devil and a surprise benefit to us sinners. Our salvation did not come from the front, but from the flank, not from the obvious attack with the strength of our hands and what we do, but at the hands of another, from the flank of grace, apart from the works of our hands, and somehow through the most horrific image and event known to man, which is the crucifixion of the Son of God. No one saw it coming. No one can take credit for it. It came against everything we consider right and obvious and strong and normal. The Bible even calls it foolishness in 1 Corinthians 1 so that we might believe all the more that we're saved, not by our strong, moralistic flexing, but by a foolish cross. That's how we get in. That's how we're saved. That's how we're connected back with God and get back to Eden. It's not the obvious what we do. It's the surprise. No one saw it coming, only what God does for us. And not just only what God does for us, but doing it in the most horrific, most, most loving, uh, but most horrible way possible is by dying as a criminal, even though he was perfect, on a criminal's cross 2,000 years ago. All right, and then the second uh, angle is to look at the water tunnel itself uh, and this idea of salvation from hewn places. So this is a story of salvation from unsuspecting places, Um, surprise places, but also from hewn places. All right, so let me actually um, back up slightly here uh, and give you a a little kind of broader brush thing. So, uh, and and I think, hope, that this will give you all some helpful Bible reading advice as you guys read your Bibles, you know, this week, but for the rest of your life. Um, You can almost call it a hack, uh, especially when reading difficult books like 1 and 2 Samuel, but it applies everywhere. Um, And that is, rocks equal Jesus. Like when you see a rock in the Bible, it almost all the time means Christ. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. Uh, Like a a cipher or a key, it images and points you to the rock of ages, which is a name for Christ elsewhere in the Bible. We have a song, I think, right, called Rock of Ages uh, as well, referring to the cleft rock of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 10.4, Paul says about the rock that Moses struck. And so you see the Bible has a pattern itself of doing this. He says the rock was actually Christ. And this is not a one-off, but this is a window into a world of seeing how rocks, again, often, if not always, typify Christ in Scripture. We've seen it a few times already 
just in this series with the Ebenezer stone, with the five smooth stones of David he used to slay Goliath, and here with a water tunnel that was also carved out of rock. And, and one thing you'll notice when you do this in, in, your, in, in Scripture, see in Scripture, is that when rocks are mentioned, they're not just rocks. They're almost always cleft or hewn or struck or harmed rocks. Uh, like the water tunnel is here, which was cut into to provide water access, but also to provide passage for David's men. And so the idea is salvation through a harmed rock points us to salvation through the cleft rock of ages who was struck and pierced and whose side poured forth water after his death when it was pierced. And that's the point. In 2 Samuel 5, deliverance and victory didn't just happen. It happened precisely and only because a rock was cut into, eroded, and hewn. There was literally no other way to take this city. That's what this is saying. That's what the Bible wants you to see. This is what God wants us to see, is that David had no way of getting in. Insults being thrown, a wall 40 feet into the air. There's a reason why the Jebusites were still here hundreds of years after Joshua and the Israelites' conquest of the rest of the land. It was an untakeable city. The only way it could be taken was first for a rock to be harmed and eroded and hewn. Just like there is literally no other way for us to be saved except Jesus being harmed for us, being cleft and eroded and cut into. There's no other way. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved, Acts 4.12, and there's no other event other than the cross. He had to die for sinners. Remember his prayer in the garden to his father? If there's any other way, Father, may, may it come to pass. But it didn't because there was none. And so he went to the cross willingly in love for you and me. And he was cleft. He was cut. He became that tunnel, that access point, that way into God's presence, into the palace to, to be with him again and a way out of the temple behind the curtain for God to run out towards us prodigals like a loving father and throw his arms around us and throw us a party like in Luke 15. And so, you see, it's not always easy to see, but it's always there. It's the stepped-over part of the passage. It's the thing we take for granted. It's the forgettable element. In this case, the tunnel. But ultimately, Jesus is the tunnel. And the only reason we're able to take another breath of oxygen is because of God's patience for us, shown through Jesus' shed blood. And the only reason we can even utter the word victory over the Jebusites of our sins is because Jesus was crucified for us. And so even though we step over him and we forget him and we want to move on to bigger and better spiritual things as Christians, shelving the gospel for things we think are advanced and more worthy of our time, he's always there for us, loving us in the shadows with the greatest love ever known to man and will ever be known. Whispering to us in the forgettable stories 
like 2 Samuel 5, the same gospel mantra of saved by grace, not by works. The same gospel mantra of I love you. I am the way. I am the access point. I am the spring of living water. I am the door. Look at my scars. Look at my side. Put your finger in them. See what I've done for you. Don't add to it. Receive me. Believe in me and what I've done for you and dying for your sins, and you will be saved. Believe me, and you, the blind and lame, will have sight and will be able to leap like calves out of a stall, like it says in, uh, at the end of the Old Testament in Malachi. Um, believe in me, and you, my enemies, will become my friends. Believe in me, and you will have victory over your sin because I will be with you. I will be your Emmanuel. I will never leave you or forsake you. You see, this is the way Jesus talks. This is what 2 Samuel 5 is echoing forward in history for us to remember as Christians. Don't moralize this to death. Step back. This is not about you. Yes, we're in the story. We're outside the wall. Jesus is your Joab. He's your David. He's your water tunnel. He's your rock. He's your fighter. And he'd do it again a thousand times over. He loves you that much. This is what we need to remember or maybe believe for the first time if you're not a Christian. This is true Christianity, that you would believe this every day of your life and take refuge in the palace of the king and hope you'll never be kicked out because you're not kept in by what you do. You're not kept in by living a good life after you believe in the gospel for the first time. You're kept in by the covering of the king and by the work of the king. So you can never be cast out. Never be cast out. So believe in him and you will be saved. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this passage, for what it means to us, uh, that it, it, again, sings this same gospel song to us uh, over and over again. Jesus, thank you that you are not just the rock, you are the cleft rock. You're uh, not just the savior figure or the savior king, you are a suffering king. Uh, You're not just the hero, you're a suffering hero. And we don't just have this kind of broad, vague idea or promise in Scripture of God being with us. We have Jesus, who actually is named Emmanuel, who is the essence, the fulfillment of that promise, and who actually enacted it into history, and who is right here in this very room with us right now. uh, You are speaking to us, Jesus, in your word. They, They come to life for us when you breathe life into them, and when you say, these stories are about me. See me in them. See how much I love you. See what I've done for you, what I've gone through for you so that you can never deny my love but keep growing in your knowledge of my love all your days Uh, and through that, reaping the benefits of being a child of the king, a sheep to the great shepherd, an inhabitant of the great palace of the ages because simply because someone has done the work for us from the flank. Saved by grace, not by works. Saved by your love, not by anything that we have to give or do. We thank you that that's true today, just like it was yesterday, two months ago, 10 years ago, the beginning of our life, 2,000 years ago, and it will be for 2,000 more years and for eternity. We thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray, amen.